All right, so this is the final in our four-week series on the issue of homosexuality, and today we're going to talk about slogans that we often hear from the pro-gay perspective and a rational response to those slogans. I think that should be very helpful because a lot of the stuff I've covered so far, you're, you, you don't generally encounter, but these slogans you encounter a lot. And so hopefully this is going to help. I'm also going to, if we have time, talk about a secular case against society approving of homosexual behavior. And that will, I'm going to give a point by point. Here's like five reasons, you know, why. And then um, the last one will be to deal with a same-sex marriage issue. Now, we've been talking about homosexuality. We've not talked about same-sex marriage at all, really. And that I hopefully will be able to deal with as well as the recent Supreme Court decision and some, some Christian perspectives on that. And if time allows, which is not entirely likely, I'll do like an open Q&A if we have time. And if not, then I'm just going to stay afterwards for as long as it takes if anybody has questions or things that they want to know about so we can resolve it. Because after I finish with this topic, I'm moving on to other things. So um, the first slogan I want to deal with tonight is this slogan. You have no right to tell two consenting adults what they can and can't do in the bedroom. I've heard this one myself. Anybody, have, have you heard that before? And if we're honest, I think the first time you hear something like this, it, for most people, it probably takes you aback. You're like, well, I mean, you're right. I don't, I don't really want to tell people what they can and can't do in their bedrooms. Like, that doesn't seem like my place. But I want to point something out. Many of the slogans are like this one. In reality, this is completely irrelevant because we are not trying to tell people what they can and can't do in their bedroom. This is actually not the issue. We are not advocating for the banning and penalizing of homosexual behaviors. That's not what we're doing. It misrepresents our position. As Christians and in, in where we are now, this is what we're doing. We are saying people shouldn't do this, not they can't. It's simply a shouldn't, shouldn't. It's a moral judgment. I might see a parent who treats their child in a way and I say, you shouldn't do that. In my mind, I'm going, I disapprove of that style of parenting, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to like go forcibly stop them. So it's not a can't, can issue. It's a should, shouldn't issue. It's about morality, not legality. Well, hopefully we'll talk about the legality issue in a little bit, but, it, but even that doesn't apply. Um, our concern at the moment isn't about what people can and can't do. It's just what they should and shouldn't do. So this sometimes is related, and I've heard people quote this, this verse in Hebrews 13, 4, that says, and I quote, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. So the marriage bed is therefore undefiled. And then the, the thing they quote this for is to say, therefore, that a, um, a, a bedroom event is automatically holy. And anything that happens in the marriage bed is automatically perfectly holy and clean. And I think we're stretching that verse really thin when you try to say something like that, actually. But could this verse be any, any more clear? Um, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. The, which bed? The marriage bed. So the bed of a committed heterosexual couple who's made a lifelong commitment to it. This is what's undefiled. The Bible sees every other type of sexuality as fornication or sexual immorality. And we've discussed that in detail, but that's why that verse shouldn't be used. And those people never quote the rest of the verse. Let me read the whole verse to you. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 
So it's clearly drawing a distinction between a marriage sexual relationship and every other kind of sexual relationship. So this is, this is actually in support of our point. This confuses the marriage bed being sacred with just beds being sacred. Two consenting adults, what they can and can't do in the bedroom. Um, here's the thought. Is it true that there are some things which are good in private but should not be done in public? Yeah. You know, showering. That's good in private. I hope we all, you know, partake of that public ritual or I should say public uh, societal rituals that we that we shower most of most of us do that's good childbirth childbirth is a wonderful thing but we did we don't do it like you know on the street corner if we can avoid it <laughs> right <laughs> and marital relations are a good and wonderful thing but they're not to be done in public however private same-sex acts aren't automatically therefore moral because they're in private and I can think of several things that can happen in a bedroom that are still immoral, even though they're done in private. Abuse in a bedroom is not better than abuse out of a bedroom. It's just abuse. Making meth in a bedroom is not better than making, a, making meth in a public area. It doesn't become good because it's private. We understand that logic, right? This is, this is clearly a truth of reality, is that things are not automatically good because they're in private. Um, consenting abuse in private is not good either. We would look at two consenting abusers who are hurting each other violently, but, they, but they, for some reason they get some joy out of this, and we would say something is wrong with the wiring in your brain right now. Like something is wrong with what you're doing. This is not okay. And just because you consent, it doesn't therefore make it okay. Bedrooms do not change the moral quality of behavior. Even though it's true that some things should not be done in public, those things are good whether or not there's a bed. <laughs> they're, just, they're, just, they're, they're good things that should be done in private. So that doesn't apply. So you have no right to tell two consenting adults what they can and can't do in the bedroom. Well, sort of true, sort of false. You know, I mean, if they're cooking meth, then we should, as society, say you can't do that in the bedroom or anywhere else for that matter. Um, if they're being abusive or, or something like that or doing like let's say that there's an incestuous relationship I think the society has a right to say that's wrong. You need to stop uh, Now do we penalize it or not do we you know all that sort of that's another other legal concerns But we do there is a right and wrong about things and uh, and we're still we're not saying what's wrong uh, or what you can and can't do We're simply saying what's morally wrong. We're disapproving. That's really if you think about it That's what most of what I've dis discussed this whole time is just to say see and that's why we disapprove that's pretty much what we're what we're going for here as Christians is the disapproval of homosexual behavior, uh, but it enrages it enrages our society because of the societal brainwashing that's gone on about this issue. Uh, the next one that I hear a lot is who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? Raise your hand if that's been said to you about an issue before. You're having a normal conversation with someone, you tell them something, it's a moral judgment you make, and they go, "Who are you to judge?" And then they quote, who knows what passage they quote. Matthew 7, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged. They always quote the King James Version on that one. I don't know why. The person who says to you, don't judge, is judging you. This, in and of itself, should show you that the philosophy of don't judge is unlivable. Because you can't enforce it. Because <laughs> it requires judgment. That's the only way that person could could say you're judging is by making a judgment about what you're doing and then 
condemning you for it or calling you out on it. So the person inevitably who says don't judge is the judgmental one. And they obviously don't think it's wrong to judge because they're doing it. So what they're really saying is that you're wrong and they're right. They're the one making the judgment here. You're, I'm right, you're wrong, and who are you to judge? But I can judge. It's tolerance, but it only runs one direction. <laughs> this tolerance is a one-way street. Ultimately, though, this, I have to point out, is a bully tactic. When people say, you don't judge, who are you to judge? This is just a bully. They're bullying you. It's really rude. It's very, in, in, in honesty, it's very hypocritical. Perhaps they think it's wrong to disapprove of what someone else is doing. Well, then why are they disapproving of what you're doing? Perhaps they think it's wrong to make judgment calls about others. Then why are they making a judgment call about you? Again, it is only those who disagree with them who are not allowed to judge. This is irrational and ultimately hypocritical and very much a bully thing. This tolerance goes only one way. You then become the villain. So as a Christian, with this scripture being quoted, I want to now address the verse itself in Matthew 7. And you can flip there if you like, and we can look at it in context. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. Are we supposed to make judgments or make no judgments at all? Or does God simply call us to not forget our place when we make judgments? I think it's the second one. Matthew 7 verse 1 says, judge not that you be not judged. And then there's more. That wasn't all he said. Jesus continued, for with what judgment you use, or with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Speaking about fairness. Verse 3, and why do you look, and now he applies it, at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye, as though there's this like two by four sticking out of your eye. So, they may have laughed when Jesus said this. It was, it's kind of hyperbole. He's like, there's a, there's a giant plank sticking out of your eyeball. And you're looking at the speck in your brother's eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye. And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye. Set it down. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So what is it he wants us to do? Judge yourself first and then help that person. Don't just go, hey, you have a speck, but who am I to judge? No, it's like, you have a speck, well, let, me get, let me deal with my issues so I can come help you with yours. We're actually to be actively involved in helping others with their problems. Now, this might be seen as self-righteous, but that's the whole point. That's what Jesus is avoiding the self-righteous attitude of not dealing with me first. That's what this is about. It's not about never judge. It's about how you judge. There are three types of judgment the Bible says we should not do. One, is a judgment where we reinvent morality to suit ourselves. In Isaiah 5.20, listen to these words. God says, Woe to those who call evil good and call good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. They, they switch morality around. They reinvent morality. Woe to them. This is actually what those who say don't judge are often doing. The, ideal behind, the idea behind who are you to judge who are you to make this judgment call? Usually what I see behind that is that person saying, we get to invent our own morality. So I can reinvent morality to sort of suit my worldview and my position rather than discovering God's morality. So they're switching good for evil. They're doing the wrong kind of judging at that point. 
The second kind of judgment we're not supposed to do is to hypocritically ignore my own issues. That's what the Matthew 7 passage was dealing with, to hypocritically ignore my own issues. Galatians 6, 1 also talks about this. Consider yourself first, lest you also be tempted, you know, before you go to help a brother out. But then it commands you to help out a brother who's, who's fallen in sin or has sin issues, rather than just to ignore it or walk by. This is why we're called to judge ourselves first and then to rightly apply judgment to others. The third type of judgment not to do is uh, to judge beyond what I know and beyond what God has declared. In other words, to make just assumptions about things that I, I really have no basis to make this assumption. Paul gives a good example of this in 1 Corinthians 4 or 5 when he talks about his ministry. And he says, as far as I know, my ministry is legit. <laughs> and then he goes, but, you know, I don't know of anything against me, but I judge nothing before the time. And ultimately, it'll all be made clear when, when Christ brings perfect and clear judgment to it. So he, he makes judgments based on what he knows, but then he stops at a certain point and goes, I don't really know beyond. Here's my gray area. I don't know this, so I'm just going to leave it alone. This, however, is not a case for don't judge in the issue of homosexuality because God has made sure this is not a gray area. It's very clear. It's very black and white, very crystal clear that this is a sin issue in, in every possible scenario. And so, um, so we would actually be judging switching evil for good if we say it's good. We're actually going directly against the scripture in multiple ways by doing that. And so those are three ways we're not to judge, but we are called to judge in certain ways. One, we're called to agree with God. You know, that's what the word confession means. To confess, if you translate it sort of right in English, it means to speak the same or like to parrot, to repeat after me, so to speak. I'm agreeing with God. If I confess, I'm saying, God, you're right about that. You're right about that. So when I say God says in the scripture, homosexuality is wrong, and I'm just saying, I agree, I confess, it's sin. So that is something we're called to do. Everyone's called to confess. In fact, it's part of getting saved is coming back to God's views of morality and, and admitting the sin of sin. Another way we're to judge is we're to call evil, evil and good, good. <laughs> so we're, we're, we are, woe to those who don't do that, who flip it around, but we are actually called to do this. Hebrews 5.14 talks about this. It says that those who are of full age or mature Christians, this is Hebrews 5.14, that is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both evil and good. That mature Christians are lauded or, or, or say, saying, hey, this is a indicator that you're a mature believer, you can notice the difference between good and evil. You discern that's evil, that's good. That's not judgment in the negative sense, it's judgment in the positive sense. You're just, you call evil evil, you call good good, and you can tell the difference. That's a mature believer. An immature believer often is not like this. And those who neglect their Bibles year after year, those who go unfortunately to some churches where they don't really teach the Bible, they just kind of give heart, I mean, I love heartwarming. Everybody wants their heart warmed. <laughs> But all they do is heartwarm, but they don't do it necessarily with the actual teaching of the word. These people often are dull and they're unable to discern the evil and the good. And so they sometimes walk in confusion and make sometimes very bad life decisions simply because the black and whites of scripture are not clear to them. Now, but you might ask, are we called to judge publicly though? Or should it just be private? Should I just, I know it's wrong like a lot of people do on this issue of homosexuality, like, well, like, I know it's wrong, but, you know, that's just, that's what I think, and I, I, I believe it's wrong, but that's just, like, in my bubble, in my little zone, here's the me zone, but I don't want to put that on anybody else or try to convince others. Is that what scripture wants? 
Well, the constant example throughout the entire Bible of prophets, apostles, and Jesus himself is to go into the culture and world around you and confront the most obvious wrongs of that world and preach righteousness. Noah is lauded for being a preacher of righteousness. For being like, hey, that's right, that's wrong. That's right, that's wrong. Um, John, the Baptist, people came to him and he like targeted their specific sin issues when they came to him. The tax collectors show up and they go, what should we do? And he goes, how about you don't extort? How about you don't take more money than you're supposed to? The centurions come, they're like, what should we do? And they're like, you want to repent? All right. You know what you need to do? You need to stop bullying people. You need to stop oppressing people and using your authority wrongly. So he like specifically targeted their sensitive sin issues. That's what he did. This is normal for the apostles. Paul walks into Athens and he sees all these gods and he gives them a nice long speech where he tells them that they're all false. <laughs> and so he targets the specific issues of the day. And that's what uh, part of what the gospel is, is targeting the sin issues of the day, showing them that, you know, bringing awareness of sin so that you might bring the, the salve and the, and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Because if there's no awareness of a need for a savior, if there's no symptoms of an illness to point out, then there's, there's no need for a cure. And so it's part of the gospel. It's a very important part. Ephesians 5.11 says it this very clearly. Ephesians 5.11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Just plain out, straight out telling us, expose unfruitful works of darkness. So we are actually called to make this kind of discernment, this kind of judgment, which is why I did this series. I'm like, I really feel responsible as, as much as it might be uncomfortable in some ways to expose this confusing issue and make, make it clear based on what scripture teaches. So that's why we're doing it. So we're not judging in the sense of making it bad by our judgment. We're simply acknowledging that something's bad. So, so those who say, uh, don't judge, are judging <laughs> and they're asking an unlivable standard of just you. It's a one way thing. You don't judge, but I do. I get to judge. I get to judge you. So I think one way to respond to someone who says this to you is to ask them a question like this. Do you think rape is evil? Now I'm going to bet they're going to say yes. If they don't, there's something else wrong that you can then address, but I'm going to, I'm going to bet they're going to say yes. Is rape evil? Then you can turn to them and say, who are you to judge? And let them realize that this unlivable hypocritic standard is what they're doing. And hopefully that that helps. Hopefully that helps. Um, basically, don't judge is the response of, I have no argument, but I don't like what you're saying. And it's a bully tactic to make you look bad. So I, I say, try to expose it to them with that question. Is rape evil? Then, oh, it is? Well, who are you to judge? So you can't, you can't live by that standard. It's, it's unrealistic. Another slogan that we hear is, but they love each other. In fact, this is, this is really at the core of a lot of the pro-same-sex uh, uh, pro marriage movement and things like that is, but they love each other. They love each other. There's one problem with this, though. They never define the word love. I have no idea what is meant by love in this particular scenario. Their love seems to be generally about the intensity of emotions and desires for each other. Hey, that can be intense, but that is not a good definition of love. You know what, you know where a good definition of love is? 
in the Bible. And in fact, as Christians, we have a specific understanding of love that is revealed to us in the scriptures where Paul seemed to try to be correcting the false understanding of love of the culture around him, just like we need to continue to do. And so we have that in 1 Corinthians 13. But let me take you to a different passage today. You, you're familiar with that. We've talked about it already. But let me look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, the less commonly quoted John 3, 16, 1 John 3, 16. This is the chief example of love in the Bible. Here's how you can test things. Is, is it love? Well, this is what love looks like. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Laying down your life, or self-sacrifice for the benefit of others, that is a great example of love. In fact, by this we know love. He sacrificed himself for the benefit of others. This is so different than the kind of thing they mean when they say, but they love each other. You mean they'll make sacrifices for the other person's benefit? Like not sinning with each other. That would be a good sacrifice to make in this situation. Just like if a, um, if, if a married woman felt the ty that type of love for a man she's not married to. The most loving thing she could actually do for that man is to distance herself radically from that individual because you don't want to you don't want to fall into sin, you sin against God, sin against each other, sin against your marriage. And if that guy really cares about and loves that woman, he's going to distance himself from her because he's not going to ruin her marriage and mess up their lives because that's not love, that's just desire. Number 2, also, so one we have the chief example of love in 1 John 3:16, self-sacrifice. Two, it is not in the Bible. It is not 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 chiefly romantic. Biblical love is not chiefly a romantic thing. I like romance. Okay. I've, I'm, I'm more romantic probably than my wife is. I, uh, <laughs> this is, this is, this is true, but that is not primarily what love is about in the scripture. It is not chiefly romantic love between a husband and wife. There is far more brotherly love discussed than husbandly, wifely love. There is far more love between fathers and, and, and children and, and this sort of thing. And if you think about it, you've got maybe one spouse if you're married at all, but everybody else is your brother and sister. And that's why the Bible constantly exhorts brotherly love. This is, this is the type of love. And I know this now being married, the type of love I really give my wife is really the same kind of love I give to everybody else. It's not really qualitatively that different. We just enjoy another aspect of the relationship that is secure just for marriage. But I give her the same type of love that I give everybody else. Just thoughtfulness, self-sacrifice, concern for her well-being and how she is, you know, that sort of thing. But that's not in and of itself romantic. Flowers are romantic, but love is in itself is, is a self-sacrifice for the other's benefit. One example of loving people like this would be not engaging in immoral sexual behavior with them. So they love each other turns out to be a really good reason why they should not engage in immoral sexual behavior together. So another point I want to make on this is does love, is there, is it possible for love itself to make wicked things good? Is that possible? Now this is, goes right up against Hollywood and their typical <laughs> portrayals of love and the, and the types of things you find yourself rooting for people that are actually doing very wrong things because they're, you know, that's the, that's the way it's presented. 
But the scripture says love does not rejoice in iniquity. And I would say not only does love not make sin okay, real love does not endorse sin for two specific reasons. One, sin hurts the people who do it and hurts the very person that you purport to love while you're doing it. You're injuring them in that. That act is not love because it's sin against them. That's, that, that is not a loving part of that relationship. Number two, when I sin, I fail to love God. And that is my chief calling in life. Love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then love my neighbor as myself. So love of my neighbor does not give me motive to then go against the love of, of God. It's just such confusion. In fact, in domestic violence counseling, which is something I do uh, on a weekly basis, and we have that ministry here at the church, um, we talk frequently about something we call love confusion. Because one of, the, one of the most difficult things to do when you see a couple who has a cycle of violence going on, where it's real strong violence and really bad behavior going on, is getting them to the point where they realize this isn't love. Because it has the feelings of love, but without having the qualities of love. We call it love confusion. It's a common term we use in the, in the, uh, in the program. And there's a reason for that because it is quite confusing. These intense emotions, they seem like love, but it is not what the Bible describes as love. And it is not probably what onlookers into that relationship would go, yeah, that's love. So these particular acts, and notice when we are against homosexual behavior, we're not, we're not, I'm not against two guys holding hands. That's a, 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 culturally, it's a strange thing in America, but it's not in and of itself something that something's wrong with it. It's against the physical plumbing issues of two men being in bed together and inserting parts of bodies and where they don't belong. If you understand what is actually in question here, it's clearly not a loving thing. So love does not make things okay. <laughs> love does, does love make adultery okay? Ask anyone who's ever been cheated on if love made that adultery okay. Does love make incest okay? What if I really love someone so I choose to kidnap them? What if I really love someone and they want me to kidnap them, but they're, they're like 17 and not 18 and so that I kidnap them? It, but we love each other, so it's okay, right? No, of course not. Does love make lying or fornication or premarital sex okay? Does love do any of these things? No, of course not. Love is not the condition that makes otherwise wrong things okay. That's nowhere in the moral, in the Christian worldview is this out there and, and certainly. It's like, you rob banks? Yeah, but you don't understand. I love to rob banks. <laughs> oh, well, no, if it's love, then it's okay. This is an unlivable, another unlivable standard. Love doesn't make these things okay. What they'll do is they'll create a false dichotomy between love and lust. Like either you love each other or you lust for each other. But in reality, again, that's describing um, love as being sex with good intentions and lust as being sex with bad intentions, which is completely confusing and, and not accurate. You can love somebody and have lust for them. You can lust them only and love for them only or have or both. Or perhaps you really do care for someone and yet you have lust, just plain desire for them. And for that very reason, again, you distance yourself from them because of your actual care for them. This anyway, life's a little bit more complicated than that false dichotomy. Um, the next thing I want to deal with is the slogan that two consenting adults makes it okay. As long as they consent and as long as they're adults, whatever they do is totally fine. Is adult consent all that really matters when it comes to the morality 
of what people do. Can two consenting adults say anything they do is therefore morally good? Because we're not arguing that it should be uh, banned. We're arguing that it's not morally good. It's morally bad. What if they gather together and they both consent as adults to stand around and blaspheme God for three hours straight? Does it therefore make, hey, stop that. You're blaspheming the Lord. You're bringing judgment down on yourself. Stop that. Oh, but we're both consenting adults. It's, a, it's irrational. You, where, where does this become okay? It's not consent that makes evil good. It's the lack of consent that makes a good thing evil. That's why sex in marriage could be a wonderful thing, but rape in marriage, which does happen, is a horrible thing. It took a good thing and made it bad because of the lack of consent. But you can't flip, you can't flip it and have consent make something bad into something good. It's really the other way around. It doesn't make bad things good. It just makes good things bad. It's just like poop. It just makes good things bad. It doesn't make anything good. <laughs> That's the lack of consent. Um, what if two people get together, two adults, they agree together as consenting adults to commit adultery. Does that make that adultery okay? No, of course not. Of course not. What if um, there's three consenting adults and the, the original spouse says it's okay for you two to sleep together and commit this adultery. Does that make it morally good? No, it, this, is, this is morally wrong. Just because you consent doesn't make it okay. What if they consent together to commit suicide? Two consenting adults jump off a bridge together. Does that make it morally good? This should be an easy question, right? This is, no, that does not make it morally good. However, you take the consent away, now you have what's called murder. So now it's, now it's even worse. Now you've just added poop you know, to something that already stunk. If two consenting people get together to use meth or to, to, to write out hate notes about everyone they know but not send them, <laughs> this does not make it okay. This does not make it morally good. This is basically, this is humanism in disguise. Humanism that man is the measure of all things or to put it another way, that we can invent our own morality for our own convenience, just invent it, therefore now it's morally true. Like we're making up house rules and monopoly. But that's not how morality works. It's either true or, it's, or, or there is no morality, but you don't get to invent it on your own. That is one of the most, it's, it's a bankrupt system to think you can invent morality. Moral relativism, well, I'll talk about that some other day, but basically every argument for moral relativism is itself self-refuting. It's so philosophically bankrupt, um, but yet that's what this is. It's a moral relativist view. God's consent is what matters. Morality is basically asking God for his consent on the things I'm doing. I obviously consent to do everything I do. <laughs> I do it. Morality is saying, Lord, what about you? What about you? Um, here's another one that we hear, and I'm going to put it in the words that I've heard it. And even, even since I started doing this video series on YouTube, I've already been called this in this brief period of time. You are a bigot and a homophobe. Those are the words that I've heard used. One of two things is happening here when someone accuses someone of being a bigot or a homophobe. One, either they are a bigot and a homophobe, which is possible. They have extreme hatred towards gay people and they want them to suffer and they don't love them. There's no compassion or concern or anything like that. It's just, ugh, just hate them. In which case they are a bigot and homophobe. Or the other thing, they're not, and they're being falsely accused of being a bigot and a homophobe. 
Now, this is more likely for those who are bothering to sit and watch through and, and listen to this teaching. You're probably not coming to this as, an, as a bigot and homophobe because those people tend to not even want to think about the issues, <laughs> about any issues for that matter. But by this definition, that everyone who's opposed to same-sex relationships is therefore automatically a hater and an evil person and a bigot and a homophobe, by their definition, God is therefore a bigot and a homophobe. Because anybody who just doesn't fully approve of it is automatically evil. And by that definition, you're making God out to be evil because he doesn't approve of it. To which they may respond, oh, God does approve of it, except then you're no longer a Christian. So, so you can say that, but you've invented your own God, but you cannot take the God of the Bible and say this about him. You think the God of the Bible is a bigot and a homophobe, and some people do. But the least they could do is at least realize where their logic leads them. You're rejecting Christianity. You're rejecting God. You... If, if you believe that those who come against you in this area are therefore bigots and homophobes. Now, here's the response that I think I would give if I couldn't reason with the person, especially if I was in public and others are listening. I think I would respond to them by saying, you're a bully. You're a bully. I can't believe you said that about me. Since they're on the realm of emotions and accusations, I think this might be the thing that actually res they respond to. So they say, what do you mean? And you say, well, do you think incest is wrong? And then they say, yes. And you go, you're a bigot and an incest phobe. <laughs> to which they respond, no, I'm not. And you go, yes, you are. You're such a hater. Why don't you just admit it? Just admit how much you hate people who do incest. Well, I don't hate them. I just think it's wrong. Oh, so now you accept that category of belief, you know, where you just disapprove of something without hating the person who's doing it. This has just been a, a, a brainwashing effort of, of, of the the pro-gay agenda, not necessarily gay people. I don't think they've all conspired to, but there's certain watchdog groups that have tried to promote this idea that everyone who's opposed to homosexuality is these things. Um, so yeah, the next one is pretty tough, actually. Um, you're the reason why so many gays commit suicide. To which my heart sinks, but I also ha have to say I respond. Me? Really? Like I am? I know I've counseled people away from suicide multiple times. I've met with two people in the last week and a half. I've never had anyone that I'm aware of commit suicide because of me. I have had people that are alive today and I know that I got to be some part of that. But really, I'm the reason so many commit suicide. They're implying that just disapproval, again, is therefore hatred of the person, and your hate is causing them to commit suicide. Now, I want to make a couple points about this. Most of the time, what will happen next is you'll get examples of horrible, ungodly behavior towards an LGBT person, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual person, and then how they subsequently committed suicide. But in every example I've ever heard, personally, the behavior that was done against them was not anything I would ever do. And it was behavior that all of us would most, most of us at least would say unanimously, that is horrible. Now, if I would never do it and I would disapprove of it, then why am I being blamed for it? It's just, it's like saying that everyone who's German is a Nazi. You know, and, and, and my wife's got German blood and that's okay. Well, you're a Nazi now. 
It's unfair to lump me in with people who do things I disapprove of, I preach against, and I would never do. Really, the issue here is, and those stories that you've heard in the news and things like that, where horrible things happen to this individual, then they committed suicide. What happened to them was major bullying and cruelty and meanness, which we all disapprove of. So what's the real issue is bullying, meanness, and disapproval. Uh, but not disapproval of homosexual behavior, but rather the way people were handling and bullying and coming against them. And I imagine the people who came against him for that behavior would come against him for all sorts of other things too, because they're just jerks. So it's really a case for not being a jerk, which I, I think is a good thing to try to not be. So we all agree, don't be a bully. Bullying increases people's difficulties in life and, and it is a contributor towards suicide. But let me add some other interesting facts. Um, a homosexual person who's engaging in this, in, in what is no longer just a sin, but has now become a lifestyle, when you take a sin and turn it into a lifestyle, um, their struggle with sin may well factor into an increased suicide rate, which there is. But also, high rates of depression and romantic relationship problems right before episodes of suicide are very common amongst gay people, meaning much more common than bullying are relationship issues and depressive episodes. And I don't mean I'm down, I mean like clinical depression, which is a different thing than just feeling down. Can I also say, Judas committed suicide. Do we blame Jesus? Is it possible that Jesus could have said something to stop him? Absolutely. He might have been able to talk him out of it. Did God know Judas was going to commit suicide? Yeah. Do we therefore shift the blame onto Jesus? Say, Jesus, your, your, your unlivable standards are why this happened. You could have explained to him a couple things. That would have been helpful. You could have pulled him aside and said, Judas, you got a money problem. You're stealing, and I know it. But I love you, and I want you to know I affirm you. He could have done these things potentially, and maybe Judas wouldn't have committed suicide. Do we blame Jesus. Well, why don't we? Well, some people in society want to blame everyone else whenever someone commits suicide. I've known families who, after someone commits suicide, are utterly wrecked and devastated because of it. The first thing that happens is blame. This is my fault. This is your fault. That sort of thing. And that's a natural thing when there's a death in the family. It's one, there's always someone in the room who just immediately starts putting out the blame. Which, in my opinion, it's not it's not important right now. <laughs> right now, let's just let's just let's just breathe and grieve and cry and whatever needs to be done here and pray and stuff. But um, but that is unfortunately something that happens a lot. But I think it's unfair to blame all of society when somebody kills themselves. And there are situations where society or individuals, I should say, in society contributed to this person committing suicide. But it but it was the person who committed suicide. It wasn't murder. It was suicide. And there is a difference. There is a difference. So I'm not, I'm not absolving everyone of any guilt, but there is a big difference and we should acknowledge it. One study compared the suicides of gay men with the suicides of straight men, and they found that they had something in common. Certain things, there's three things. Drinking, substance abuse, and diagnosed psychiatric problems were prevalent amongst all of those suicides, meaning that possibly common factors are actually leading to these, these suicides. Another study published in the American Association for Suicidology said, it is concluded that this study finds no evidence that suicide is a common characteristic of gay youth, meaning that people are inflating the numbers. 
or that when suicide does occur among gay teenagers, that it is a direct consequence of stigmatization or lack of support. Saying that they're simply saying we don't we don't we think that uh, yes it happens for sure we we know stories, but they're the anomaly rather than the regular, and so yeah. Yeah. And what's happening here is this whole thing about you're the reason why gays commit suicide is it's it's assuming that by disapproving of the behavior, I would therefore for be hateful. And there are those who who would hear me speaking now and they think secretly, Mike, you hate gay people. You're just trying to pretend you don't. This is all part of a well-crafted persona and you're, you don't really care about gay people or you wouldn't really love them or hug them or spend time with them or pray for them or anything like that. And to that, I can say nothing I can say will undo the evil picture you've painted of me. There's just nothing I can say because you're a bigot. There's nothing I can say. And so I'm going to move on. <laughs> um, you justify violence against gay people. This is a similar accusation, but it's something that we've heard is these attitudes you have are what justify violence, gay bashing, and things like that. To which I would respond, no, I really don't. To which they would respond, yes, you do. And I'd say, no, I don't. And they'd say, I'm rubber, you're glue. <laughs> and eventually we realized that it's just a baseless accusation. Like, wh what do I do that justifies this? Um, I mean, you're the villain in this scenario. You justify violence against gay people. But yet you say the words, I do not justify violence. against. I, I disapprove of violence against people because of their sexual orientation, you know, or whatever they want to claim it is, or because of their sexual behavior. I disapprove of this. No, you don't. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Like, I, I, I mean, if Hitler walked in the room and I ran across the room and just punched him right in the nose, they'd still think I was the bad guy at this point. There's just nothing I can do to convince you otherwise. It's just, I've been, it's called an ad hominem attack. It means to the man. And usually this is what happens when I cannot take on your arguments, I take on you. Well, I can't take on your arguments, but you know what? You got dumb hair and you got big, ugly toes and you're mean and you're and you're 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 a horrible person. And I, and you should you should stop talking ever, ever again. And this is just an ad hominem. It's just an. So there's there is a response to this. It's kind of snarky, but I'll just give it to you guys. Here's one. You justify violence against gay people. You could turn to this individual and say, well, you justify the burning of churches and the persecuting of Christians. And they go, no, I don't. And you go, yes, you do. And it's pretty much just, it's a baseless argument with a, with a response of a baseless argument for the goal of when you see the shoe on the other foot, perhaps you'll recognize what you're, what you're doing is hypocritical and, and uh, unfounded. Um, another um, statement we sometimes hear is, you're on the wrong side of history. Um, I've, have, have anybody heard that before? I know I haven't had people say this one to me, but I've heard it said as I was studying for this enough that I thought I'll mention it. You're on the wrong side of history, like the church always is. Now this is sort of a revisionist view of history where the church is the inevitable bad guy and it's secular humanists who are like slowly dragging the church from darkness into light over the course of centuries. It's reinforced by Hollywood vi videos and movies where they go back in time and they have a dramatization of history or even a fabrication and the lead character is always somebody with 21st century ideals like I mean look at the even the Disney characters like they go you go back in time you're in like feudal Japan and yet they're Democrats you know I mean they're they're like progressive liberals that's their perspective on everything and they're slowly trying to pull everyone out of the dark well this is just ridiculous and it's not historically true if I can point out a couple specific myths 
The church has not been utterly stupid for its history, slowly drugged to the light by secular scientists. The church did not believe the world was flat when Columbus set sail. The church did not believe it. Nobody thought the world was flat. when Col They did not think he would fall off the edge of the earth. Scientists in the Academy of Science said, hey, we think the earth is bigger than you think it is, Columbus, and you're not going to make the voyage all the way to India. They were right. They just didn't happen to know there was a continent he ran into, lucky for him. <laughs> Which is why he called them Indians. Right? I mean, but this was this was understood. It was known for hundreds of years and it was well accepted and it was not a problem. Some people say, well, Galileo, he, you know, Galileo um, discovered that the uh, the earth was was not the center of the solar system and the universe wasn't all revolving around a, a still earth that was unmovable. The church thought that the earth didn't move, but but this is actually not true. It was Copernicus, not Galileo, that said things that overturned the view of a helio uh, or of a uh, excuse me an, an earth centric view of the galaxy of the solar system of, of everything they saw and um it was actually for a different reason that galileo got in trouble galileo was not put in in in, uh, in jail and persecuted unlike some of the dramatization show because he said that the earth spun and went around the sun he was put in jail because he wrote a work called On the Revolution of the Heavenly Sphere. So it did talk about this sort of thing. And um, in it, he put an argument from a fool, uh, in, in the mouth of a fool, that was from Pope, Ur the Pope of the time, Pope Urban VIII. So Pope Urban had said something and he took his words, the Pope's words, and put them in the fool's mouth in his story. So the Pope got greatly offended and put him in jail. He himself believed that he had, in fact, I'll quote it to you, in the end, Galileo was convinced the reason for his trouble was making fun of his holiness, <laughs> not the issue of the earth moving. It's just a revisionist view of history that paints religious people as these backwoods, like don't have a clue and stuff like that. Um, it's really not the case. There's a lot of data I could give you on that, but I want to move forward. Um, yeah, that's really not the case. It's really not the case. Um, so we're on the wrong side of history. It's actually, moral reform has almost always been preceded by believers who have biblically founded values pushing forward moral reform against slavery, against various other atrocities. So uh, one more slogan, telling same-sex couples that they can't marry is the same as telling interracial couples that they can't marry. Um, this, the first time I heard it, I just stuttered. I was like, uh, and I had to think for a moment. And that's what these slogans are meant to do is to get you just to be like kind of thrown off, off your pace and you have to consider them. But it's saying that homosexual relationships are parallel to, to interracial relationships. But this is wrong. Racism is a bias based on a non-difference or differences that are so trivial, like, like skin tone, that are so trivial as to be completely unimportant and unrelated to the conclusions of racism. That makes sense, right? I mean, we all agree on that. However, gender differences are massive and they give us really good reasons to think that there's a big difference between a man and a woman and a woman and a woman or a man and a man. The most obvious one being you can't have children. Like, not because you're infertile. 
you're fertile. You're just, you're doing it wrong. Like you can't have children like this. You're not designed this way. Whereas interracial couples certainly can. You know, and do, and make the cutest babies we've ever seen. <laughs> so um, the purpose here to make this parallel is to, to try to get the world to see um, anyone who's opposed to same-sex marriage or um, homosexual behavior as a racist. That's the real goal here. Even though it's not a parallel, it's not philosophically sound to say it. <clears throat> All right, so I'm trying to move forward for speed here, but I want to talk for a minute about the secular case against homosexuality. We've already touched on a couple topics related to it, but let's do this. Why do we want to do this? Well, um, you might be like, I don't need a secular case. I got the biblical case. Well, you're right. You don't need one for you, but you want to influence other people in, in good directions in their lives. And also, there is a secular case. There's a lot of reasons here. Um, and the info I'm about to share with you, it shows the great danger of homosexual activity for homosexuals. Great, great danger. You may have thought it was unhealthy, but you'll probably be surprised to find out how unhealthy it actually is. Um, and also, because some believers who know the biblical case, they think it's wrong, but they're acting like it's okay. And for them to see that it's that there's a biblical and secular case might help bring them over to saying, okay, take a stand. You know, take a stand out of love for the gay community who is being pushed because of political agendas into doing self-destructive behaviors. So the secular case is going to ask these questions. Um, what impact does homosexual behavior have on individuals in general, the ones who engage in the behavior and the ones that they directly impact? And what impact does it have on society as a whole? So those are two different questions that I think are valid for a secular case regarding. Secular doesn't mean anti-biblical, it just means in addition to, other than. So we want to determine, should we encourage this behavior or not? I mean, the current issue is not uh, just live and let live. That's been going on for a long time. This is about approving. I mean, society as, a, as courts and laws and this sort of thing, and even just public opinion, we could do one of four things. We can prohibit behavior like murder. You're not allowed to do that. That's prohibited. We can discourage behavior like smoking. There's extra taxes on it and things like this, and it's discouraged, and you can't do it in certain places at certain times. Um, we, uh, we could protect behavior. We not only allow it, but we actually protect it, like speech, free speech. Speech is a protected thing we have. And we could even reward behavior, like marriage or military service. Certain behaviors we actually reward as society. So we're kind of saying, where is homosexual behavior on this scale? Should it be prohibited, discouraged, protected, rewarded, or just, you know, laissez-faire, just kind of allowed? At the very least, what I'm about to share with you says this. It should not be rewarded. It certainly shouldn't be rewarded and encouraged to, to increase. In short, homosexual behavior is bad for individuals and society because, well, for one, it's related to various physical afflictions, which you're not going to get argument on either side on this issue. There are, obviously, we know about AIDS. I'll come back to that in a minute, HIV and AIDS. But there are problems with homosexual behavior that are not related to HIV and AIDS. And it has to do with the particulars of human for, for I, hate to, I hate to be crude, but because of the plumbing of human beings, your body's not designed for this. So I'll put it that way. There's great details here, but your body's not designed for this. So one third of men who engage in regular homosexual receptive behavior have chronic incontinence or failures of the sphincter muscle because it's been damaged by the behavior. Chronic incontinence. 
diarrhea, cramps, hemorrhoids, prostate damage, ulcers, and fissures, which invite infections, are all too common amongst those who engage in same-sex behaviors. In 75% of syphilis cases in 2012, they were amongst men who practiced sex with other men in 2012, according to the Center for Disease Control. Keep in mind that this percentage of men who, the 75% represents about 2% of the population's behavior. So it's, it, the, the, the chances of syphilis are astronomically high amongst men who practice sex with men. The most common disease is something called amoebiasis, and 25 to 40% of homosexual men are affected by that disease. The, the list goes on. And for sake of time, I'm going to move quickly here, but gonorrhea, chlamydia, uh, various viral infections uh, like anal warts, herpes, hepatitis B, hepatitis A. Men who have sex with men have a typical STD rate that over a course of their lives, 75% of them will have STDs. Over the course of a year, 40% of them will have STDs. The general population has a lifetime STD rate of 16.9%, and that includes in there the homosexual group, and a yearly STD rate of 1.6%. Of course, not for anyone pretty much who stays a virgin until they're married like the scripture declares. You don't have to worry that's you you don't have to get tested or anything <laughs> because you're good to go you're good to go <clears throat> but i would say that every one of these stds with with almost no exceptions is going to have come from people doing what the bible calls sin various cancers is not just stds cancers such as colon cancer and even breast cancer are higher in the gay community don't ask me why breast cancer is higher amongst uh, lesbians, but it is. Statistically, it is. And that is acknowledged on, on uh, pro-gay websites. They're like, hey, women, you need to get this checked out and that checked out because your instances are higher of these different, different cancers. In, in the men who have sex with men who do not have HIV, who do not have HIV, they are 20 times more likely to get anal cancer. 20 times in men who have sex with men who are HIV positive, they are 40 times more likely to get anal cancer. There, the list goes on uh, of cancers and things like this. It goes on and on and on. And it's, it's very unpleasant stuff because your heart hurts for people suffering these things. Amongst those who do have AIDS, well, in the current population, um, 1.2 people, 1.2 million people in the U.S. currently have HIV. 1.2 million people, the majority of which got it through male-to-male -male sexual behaviors. The HIV, um, the virus seems to have an affinity for the specific flesh of the rectum. It's, it's without any more details than that, that is, that is its, its happy place to be. And it's extremely dangerous for, um, for men. There are 50,000 new HIV infections every year in the United States. We don't talk about it very much anymore. Not since uh, probably the 90s, we sort of stopped talking about it. But there are 50,000 new HIV infections every year. And CDC.gov says that 78% of all new HIV infections are a result of men having sex with men. 
78% of these 50,000 infections are men having sex with men, but you've got to keep something in mind. This is really shocking when you realize those who have sex with men on a regular basis is less than 2% in a given year of the population. Less than 2% of the population getting 78% of the HIV infections. What are the odds there? How many times more likely is it? I'm not, I don't, I'm not a mathematician, so I haven't figured it out. I asked a mathematician, but <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Yeah. Um, those stats come from the cdc.gov. They're not from pro-family websites that are trying to, to, to twist things. This is just yeah. related to um, not only diseases and those sorts of things, but drug and substance abuse are also radically increased amongst the homosexual community for some reason. Those who self-identify as homosexuals were found to have used tobacco in the past 30 days at a rate double the non-homosexual community. 18% of heterosexuals have used tobacco in the past 30 days, whereas 35% of homosexuals. Alcohol abuse has also increased, especially in the lesbian community. 35% of female homosexual women had a history of alcohol abuse compared to 5% of females in general. So they're seven times more likely to have alcohol abuse. Other similar statistics come from pro-gay sources that are saying the same thing because they're trying to help these gay people like, hey, watch out, you've got this tendency, we have these statistics and we want you to be careful, which is, which is good. 45% of the LGBT population, according to the Pride Institute, abuse alcohol, 45% versus about 15% of the general population. There are, it's not just alcohol and tobacco, 51% of homosexual males have a history of drug abuse, other drugs, compared to 7% in general. Men who have sex with men are 3.5 times more likely to use pot, marijuana, than men who do not have sex with men. These men are also 12.2 times more likely to use amphetamines than men who do not have sex with men. They are nine and a half times more likely to use heroin than men who don't have sex with men. <laughs> there are also increases in the homosexual community in other areas like depression, suicidal thoughts, and attempted suicide. And these things go, they all seem to go together, substance abuse and this sort of stuff. For the sake of time, I need to move forward. But related to reckless sexual behavior, the number of partners and the brevity of relationships in the homosexual community is radically different than that of the heterosexual community. A study of sexual profiles of 2,583 older homosexuals was published in the Journal of Sex Research, and the most common response given by 21.6 of the uh, respondents was of having 101 to 500 sex partners over their lifetime. That was the most common response given. 101 to 500 sex partners over the course of their lifetime. Only 2.7% of these men claimed to have only ever had sex with one partner. That's radically different than the, the heterosexual community. It's not just that study, nor is that the worst uh, statistics. Um, another study found that homosexual men had averaged over 20 partners per year. That was from LA in the late 1980s. Um, and perhaps that some of this has been curbed through um, uh, you know, attempts to, to change their sexual habits of the community because of safety issues. But um, 
Another three-year-long study in Boston in the late 80s found that 77% of the homosexuals surveyed had more than 10 partners in the previous five years. More than 10. 34% of them had more than 50 partners in that same amount of time. Several other studies have agreed, and some have given even more shocking numbers, probably depending on the, the, um, the demographics of the area they were at. The worst ones have been the ones taken from San Francisco area. But I didn't quote those to you because I'm not trying to give you the most shocking. I'm actually giving you the more conservative uh, numbers. Among heterosexuals, or, uh, a study found that only 17% of men and 10% of women had more than one partner in the previous year. More than one. Only 17% of men and 10% of women. Just by comparison. So you don't think, well, everyone's doing that stuff. Well, this is, it's, it's radically different. So the number of partners and the brevity of relationships show a reckless sexual behavior happening inside the homosexual community. And that's a typical thing. Now, it's not every person, but it is that it is seems to be the, the theme. Same-sex long-term relationships are also, they're not a parallel to heterosexual marriage because even in long-term committed same-sex relationships, they are almost never monogamous. They are almost never faithful to only one partner. The frequency of sex outside of the long-term relationship is, 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 <laughs> it is, it is, uh, it is very common. In one recent study, of gay male couples, 41.3% of them, of the couples, had open sexual agreements with some conditions or restrictions. 41% agreed with some conditions we will be able to have sex outside of our relationship with other people. 10% had open sexual agreements with no restrictions on sex with outside partners. One-fifth of the participants reported breaking their agreement in the preceding 12 months for those who agreed not to. This is something that even pro-gay theologians would have to call sexually immoral. The sad truth is that the vast majority of same-sex relationships, which last longer than five years, almost in every case, involve an agreement to have sex outside the relationship in order to satiate those desires. And that ends up being a keystone for keeping them together. Is that we are able to express our sexuality with various people in different times. This is not a parallel to marriage. In various gay studies, they talk, very gay websites, they say this is this is a key. Hey guys, here's you know sometimes here's our advice to you. Make an agreement, talk about it, go ahead and make give permission, and that way it, you can stay together, so that it's not marriage. That's not marriage. That's that's just cohabitating while sleeping around. Um, a third difference, or a third issue here, a reason why we don't want to engage, uh, encourage, encourage and endorse homosexual behavior, encouraging it will increase it, and it will increase the afflictions associated with it. I mean, if this is this drastic, if I'm losing years off of my life because of homosexual behavior, then I should at least not encourage it. I mean, what if the government went out there and posted ads encouraging people to start smoking cigarettes? And then anyone who came against them smoking cigarettes, they said, you're a, you're a bigot and a cigarettophobe. And it's just, it's irrational. If we're, if we're for the safety health-wise of society, we buy a, for secular reasons alone, we, sh we don't want to encourage this behavior. And you might say that's not fair. Well, you're, well, in a sense, you're right. It's not fair. It's not fair to limit pilots to only people who have good vision. 
It's not fair to say a brother and sister can't marry, but it's safe and healthy to, to say these things. That's what society does. We, make dis we, we decrease the fairness or the freedom in order for safety and healthiness to be happening. And so we do this in some cases. It's not fair to tell me I can't drive on the other side of the road, but it's safe and healthy to tell me I can't drive on the other side of the road. Another reason for, uh, for this, um, our secular case, same-sex erotic relationships are inferior to heterosexual relationships in several, several capacities. One, the most obvious, they cannot produce children. Society has a vested interest in marriage and in same-sex relationship, I mean, uh, opposite-sex relationships, because these produce kids. You're all a result of these kinds of relationships. We must have these relationships for society to continue. We need children. Society must be invested in children, or else it will fall. And so that's an, an inferiority uh, in uh, same-sex relationships. Uh, a same-sex relationship can't produce children any more than a relationship between a, a cow and a cloud can produce a child. It's just, it's completely impossible. There's only one way for this to happen. Also, it's inferior in raising children. And this is uh, new information that we didn't have several years back, but let me read you some information. Children who are raised in a same-sex marriage or same by a same-sex parent, um, well, they were analyzed in a study by a guy named Mark Regnerus from the University of Texas, Austin. And his study is, in, is was published in Social Science, blah, 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 Social Science Research. Try saying that five times fast. And the quotes uh, that follow, I'll, I'll give you some information now about that. Um, it is the best and most thorough study to date. And it compared kids, it's the first one to really do this, compare kids raised by two married biological parents versus kids raised by a gay parent or gay parents. So they had lesbian mothers or gay fathers. The kids raised by a gay parent did worse on 77 out of 80 evaluating measures. For instance, they are much more likely to have received welfare. Kids raised by um, their biological family, mom and dad married, are 17% of them are, are on welfare or have received welfare. Lesbian mothers, their children, 69% of them receive welfare. Gay fathers, 57% of them receive welfare. So they just took specific points, added them all together to say, can we say this is wrong? Some of the other points where they had lower educational attainment. These kids report less safety and security in their family of origin. They report more ongoing negative impact from their family of origin. So they're adults now reporting on having been raised. Ongoing negative impact. Um, they're more likely to suffer from depression They've been arrested more often. Males and females raised by homosexual parenting have more opposite sex sexual partners than those raised by married biological parents. From a Christian perspective, this makes sense because sexual immorality is in the home, so it becomes normalized, so it becomes something they do when they get older. Um, but this study doesn't try to explain why it happens, it's just, it's just noting that it does. It found that children of homosexual fathers are nearly three times as likely and children of lesbian mothers are nearly four times as likely to identify as something other than entirely heterosexual. Children of lesbian mothers are 75% more likely and children of homosexual fathers are three times more likely to be currently in a same-sex romantic relationship. But the differences in homosexual conduct are even greater. The daughters of lesbians have four times as many female sexual partners than the daughters of married biological parents. And the daughters of the homosexual fathers have six times as many. 
Meanwhile, the sons of both lesbian mothers and homosexual fathers have seven times as many uh, same-sex sexual partners as sons of married biological parents. The most shocking and troubling outcomes, however, are those related to sexual abuse. Now, I want to be careful, and I ask you to listen carefully as you read this, as I read this to you. Children raised by lesbian mothers were 10 times more likely to have been, according to them, touched sexually by a parent or other adult caregiver. Now, it may have been the parent, or it may have been somebody else, another adult caregiver. We don't know. But they were 10 times more likely, 23% of them reported having been touched sexually as a child by a parent or adult caregiver versus only 2% of the children of married biological parents. That's a radical difference. While those raised by a homosexual father were three times more likely or a reported 6% chance that they were uh, touched in that way. In his, uh, in his text, but not in his charts, Regnerus breaks out these figures for only female victims and the ratios remain similar. Um, I'm just going to continue reading this to you for the sake of the posterity of it, but here we go. As to the question of whether you have ever been physically forced to have sex against your will, not necessarily in childhood, not, not necessarily not in childhood, affirmative answers came from 8% of children of married biological parents and 31% of children of lesbian mothers, nearly four times as many, and 25% of the children of homosexual fathers, three times as many. Again, when Regnerus breaks these figures out for females, who are more likely to be victims of sexual abuse in general. Such abuse was reported by 14% of the um, married biological families, but three times as many, or 46% of the lesbian mother's children and 52% of the gay father's children. So these statistics are, um, well, they're well-researched. It was carefully done. And there's amazing amount of hate coming out of certain groups against not only Regnerus, but anybody who quotes his stuff and, I guess I'll be next. But can I say this? To endorse same-sex marriage is to endorse same-sex parenting. That makes sense, right? Unless you're going to say they can get married, but they can't have kids. This is why Catholic Charities Adoption Agency was forced to close their doors in 2006 after in Massachusetts they, uh, they voted in same-sex marriage. They were forced to close their doors because the, the state said you can't refuse same-sex parents you have to give kids to them too and they said we're just going to stop later that year in san francisco the another branch stopped their adoption services for the same reason in 2010 the washington catholic charities closed their foster adoption services in 2011 catholic charities of illinois closed down their lawyer famously stated in the name of tolerance we are not being tolerated they were going to be forced to put children in same-sex homes, and they said that's against our beliefs and our religion, our moral values, and so they were shut down. So in other words, for the sake of children, we need to not endorse this behavior. There's actually a growing number of children as adults now, now that this has been happening for long enough that some of them are adults, coming out and openly saying, and even starting organizations against allowing same-sex people to adopt. That says a lot. So lastly, it redefines marriage in a devaluing and unjustified way. We don't have a good reason to change the, the view of morality and the view of society and go against the scripture and go against what's healthy for society and healthy for the individuals as, and all of the above. Every, for every reason, it seems to be wrong. It seems to be wrong. Um, 
Now, what I'd like to do is give you guys an option. I have not talked about the Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage, but I have a couple points I can make on that. And I want to I get by showing of hands. Would you rather me just stop and do a Q&A, let you guys ask some questions, or would you rather me talk about the Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage and some of the things about that? Um, who wants to do a Q&A just by show of hands? Well, I think that's an easy one right there, huh? So you guys want to hear about the Supreme Court a little bit? Okay, let's talk about that a little bit. We're going a little bit over on time. If anybody has to leave, God bless you. No one's going to look at you weird because it's it's time to go. But this is the last week I'll be doing this, and I really want to get this information out. And so I'll, I'll share this with you. Um, let me just find it. Okay, the, uh, the political issue of marriage, the Supreme Court decision. Here's what we need to look at. Um, what actually happened? What did the Supreme Court do? What did they actually do? Well, we can start with what they didn't do. <laughs> they did not give homosexuals a right to get married. That is not what happened. Gay marriage is not what happened. Same-sex marriage is what happened. And there's a difference, and it's really important that we understand this difference. It's not a trite thing. Okay, gay people have always been allowed to get married. But people of the same gender have never been allowed to get married. The issue is not gay marriage. That's why I try to be careful to not say gay marriage, or say it as little as I can, and say same-sex marriage because that's the actual issue. For instance, right now, if a gay man and a gay woman said, I want to get married for whatever reason, they're allowed to get married. If a straight man and a gay woman want to get married, they can get married. The state has no interest in their sexual orientation opinions. It's just that they're opposite sex. That's what marriage is. Similarly, with this new law being passed and new views, this means that two straight men could also get married. It's not about gay and straight. It's about gender. What the, what the Supreme Court did was they did not give homosexuals a right to get married. They already had that right. What they did was they redefined marriage. And they know this. That's why they said we're redefining marriage. They redefined marriage to include same-sex relationships. This is like redefining circles to include squares. It's just a redefinition. That's what, that's what they did. They redefined marriage. Marriage, however, is not a legal convention. It was discovered, not defined, in the first place. It's according to our physical design and nature. And even if you're not, uh, if you don't believe in God, then it was based on our evolution, if you will. But it's based upon our actual design, men and women, and that we're complementary and that it produces children and all this other stuff. That's what marriage is based on. <laughs> so it was not defined. It was discovered. So redefining it when it's not, it's not, see, it's not a civil institution. It's merely acknowledged with a civil institution, but it's not in and of itself merely an institution invented by men. Well, Justice uh, Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion, these, these five lawyers, five lawyers, there were five on one side, four on the other, four who disagreed, dissented, and they wrote the minority you know, opinion. Then we have the majority opinion written by Justice Kennedy. He recognized that marriage is at the center of not only the U.S., but all human civilization. He acknowledged this. He also recognized that marriage is, and I quote, by its nature, a heterosexual union. So he acknowledged the very nature of marriage is heterosexual union. This is not really debated. Marriage has always been a heterosexual union. No situation in marriage can you think of that society has endorsed has been something other than that. But then he followed up by saying, this view is now obsolete. It's obsolete. 
us five lawyers against the will of the people have decided that marriage no longer means what you think it means. Marriage, why do you keep using that word? I do not think it means what you think it means. Here's the new meaning. Suck it up. He gave four justifications in the majority opinion, four reasons why they're going to redefine marriage to include uh, same-sex marriage. And one of them is this. <coughs> Marrying whoever you want to is a right. Well, okay. But how does that make redefining marriage? That doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, we can approach this from two sides. There's the philosophical argument, the logical, and we're going to go through that right now, or the legal thing. The legal thing is that you're not supposed to legislate from the bench. You're not supposed to make laws as a Supreme Court. Your only job is interpreting the law accurately, not reinterpreting it to mean new things, which is what happened. So that's actually what most of the, the opinion against them was about. They're saying this is illegal. You can't, as a Supreme Court, do this. It's not your job. We were specific. We're not the Congress. We don't legislate. We don't make laws. We simply interpret. We just go, is this constitutional? Is it not? We just echo and repeat whatever the Constitution has already said. But they've done something else. So that's the legal thing against it. But I want to approach the philosophical or the logical stuff that they said. So marrying who you choose is a right. Well, that's true-ish, but it's also irrelevant. We don't call that marriage for the same reason we don't call a square a circle. So marrying who you want to is a right, but you can't marry a tree because that's not marriage. Not because you're not allowed to marry trees, because that's just not what marriage is. I can't marry a same-sex person because that's not what marriage is, which he acknowledged and then ignored. But there are still restrictions on who you can marry. For instance, you can't marry somebody who is already married. You can't. The state's like, sorry, we won't give you the license. You're already married. You can't marry people if they're your parent. You can't marry anyone you choose. That's not really how it works. This is just like wrong. It's wrong-headed. You can't marry people if they're a person of the same sex. And before you think that's so wacko, can I say this? That in the majority of states across the country, there are laws, state laws, that have been passed against marrying first cousins. L laws against marrying first cousins. You can't do that. You can't just marry anybody you choose. Because in the interest of all the same reasons that we talked about earlier, you can't do that. So the first reason is who you marry is a, is a right. We have a right to choose who you're going to marry, but, you, but that's a distortion of reality. And then number two, his second reason, reason for um, saying we should redefine marriage is because marriage is unique and wonderful to the married couple. What? True. Marriage is unique and wonderful to the married couple. So the implication is that you're, you're telling you know, gay people that they can't have this unique and wonderful thing. Yes, you can. You just can't have it with someone of the same sex because that's not what marriage is. It's never been that. And so it's this is sort of like an appeal to emotion. Um, however, our Supreme Court should not be making laws at all, let alone because of appeals to emotion. This is this isn't it's it's crazy. Number three. Marriage safeguards children and families. What? Yeah, it, it does. Marriage safeguards children and families. Yet we've seen, and these statistics are available to them as well, that homosexual relationships do not safeguard children and families. First off, they can't produce children. So for every couple that gets married and stays together, there's the lack of propagation of the species in, in those individuals. So we're, we're, there's no children now because of this in that situation. 
But secondly, the kids raised in same-sex homes are demonstrably worse off than the kids who are raised in uh, in biological parenting homes. And so there's there's legitimate differences. So yeah, for this reason, for number three, the fact that marriage safeguards children and family is why we shouldn't mess with it. Number four, marriage, his last reason, marriage is a keystone of our social order. There you go. In other words, marriage is extremely important to society. So why are we redefining it? If it's so important, why are we changing it? What he, this, this means it should be respected, not redefined. Now, one of the only other things that they do is they say marriage has evolved over time. And it, it, as well as acknowledging marriage, it's always been heterosexual and it's always been this way. But then they, then they sort of flip-flop and they say, well, um, it's, it's evolved over time. Marriage has not always been heterosexual. Um, couples, just one and one. Sometimes there was polygamy. Sometimes there was arranged marriages. And so they speak to the plasticity of marriage or the changeability of it. And so therefore... We're just changing it, except that these examples, polygamy and um, arranged marriages are not about the essence of marriage, are they? Because in polygamy, you have multiple one and one heterosexual couplings. In arranged marriages, we're just talking about how you met. That's like saying online dating makes new marriages. It just, it's just how you get it, how you get together. And even nowadays, even in India, there's still arranged marriages, which are not probably as bad as some people make them out to be because Disney movies, it's always like, I'm going to pick the ugliest, meanest, fattest person around and you have to marry them. And no, but I want to marry who I love, you know, and then it, it ends up with Aladdin and stuff. So that's nice. But, but this is, this is not probably, I mean, a loving parent is not going to, you know, select for their daughter the worst possible candidate they can find, you know, like, well, I don't know, do you beat your wife? Will you bitch beat her? You're the guy. You know, I mean, this is not probably the way it is. And then the issue of polygamy, I mean, we see originally marriage in the garden. We see marriage, one man, one woman. Polygamy crops up later and society keeps rejecting it. It comes up, we reject it. It comes up, we reject it. It comes up, we reject it. But the essence of marriage has never changed. And so this is also irrational. So it's philosophically wrong, it's, uh, it's legally wrong because it's not their job to make new rights based on what they think the law should be, but rather to simply say what the law is. It also goes against the will of the people. Literally five unelected lawyers just made new laws for our country that will affect all of us. And how will they affect all of us? Um, well, we'll see. Pretty much we'll be okay until someone decides to target us. In which case, I'm going to probably go to jail or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But we have already many lawsuits and many cases that where people have already been brought into bad scenarios because of this sort of thing. Um, so, yeah. It, this paves the way to punish anyone who disagrees because it's now, according to them, a constitutional right. So, like, we'll say, like, a, a chaplain in the military, will he be forced to marry this couple or go, in the, go to the brig? Or be fired from his job and lose his lose his uh, his pension? Is this what's going to happen? Um, well, that's that's the kind of thing that's already happened in some cases, um, it, and it is a genuine slippery slope. I haven't even got into the philosophical idea that that um, genuinely, for the same principles that we accept, if people accept same sex marriage, we have to accept incest and p <coughs> potentially um, uh, things like necrophilia. Like, can you think of a reason not to have necrophilia based on the same philosophy? 
but what if there's in the will it says hey i'm okay if they do this to me after i after i die because my husband we love each other and we're consenting and we're adults and we're like no it's unnatural it's unhealthy and it's just morally wrong but those are no longer reasons to say something's wrong anymore and you're you're the bad person if you want to help keep people from harm and stuff like that so i think the bottom line is um if we care about and love our uh, our gay friends and family for their sakes, for their health, for their spiritual life, that we will try to tactfully and carefully confront them on these issues. And when we're engaging in the public square, we will really try and change public opinion. And it may be a losing battle, but I'll tell you what, that should never stop you from fighting the right fight. Losing or winning, we're just called to fight. We're not, the results are not up to us. And so I, maybe I'm the guy in California, the only guy that votes for so-and-so and he doesn't get into office. But you know what? When I go to heaven, I'm like, well, I know my vote was for that guy. <laughs> you know, so it wasn't my fault. You know? we, we are called to be watchmen on the wall and to speak the truth in love. Yeah. So, um, and like you guys can leave it anytime, but I want to open it up just for questions in case anybody has something. Yeah. Doesn't that make a lot of people who love their animals? And they want to marry them, and, and they already yeah. leave inheritance to their animals. Yeah. But now it opens it up to that, doesn't it? Yeah. They can marry their dog. Um, yeah, there's, there, there is one difference in that it's, you know, it's, it's human versus, two humans versus a human and a non-human. But um, most of the reasons why a person could say, me and my animals should be able to get married, um, apply to the same, the same sex, same sex reasons. Um, most of them, not all of them though, because, but I don't know. I, I think that the next thing to happen is going to be incest personally and polygamy. Both of those right away there. We already know there's polygamists in America, in Utah. There's, there's, there's traditionalist Mormons who are, are highly polygamous and incestuous. And, um, that's the next thing they're going to, they're going to try to bring that back in. I'm sure they already are. And, um, and paving the way with, with entertainment shows based on polygamy and stuff like this. It's really atrocious but all of the same reasons like for instance if i say can't can't two uh in, can a brother and sister get married they're gonna probably the people who support same-sex marriage are gonna say no and i'll say but what if it's two brothers <laughs> now they're now you're denying a same-sex couple they're gonna realize that there's like a hypocritical standard that they can't find a good justification for this well it's unhealthy well so same-sex relationships well it's unnatural well so same-sex relationships well, it's not traditional marriage. Well, so same-sex relations, like all the same reasons you would give apply to these other relationships, incest and polygamy in particular. Um, and, uh, and, and, I'll, and I can think of like necrophilia. I can think of that as being a legitimate, I can make an argument for it based on the same principles. And this is not the same as a slippery slope argument. The slippery slope is saying one will lead to another will lead to another. This is a principled argument. It's saying if these principles are true, then therefore this and therefore this. So it's, anyway, if that helps. <laughs> yeah, anybody else? Yeah, he may be right. I'm just, you know, this is this isn't a ton of research. Just my personal opinion is the closest parallel would be incest and polygamy, but that society's general desire to protect children would probably hold pedophilia off longer, right? Because you know, I, I think that I think society would hold pedophilia off longer. Although there are advocates, there's NAMBLA, the the the, the Manboy Love Association. There's there they they are there are these groups um, who uh, want 
want to bring pedophilia in and try to make it part of like as if it's a normal part of a loving family relationship for uh, adults to have sexual encounters with children. And then they'll have their arguments. And I've heard some of them, you know, they're like, well, it's not what you think. It's this, not that. And this kind of thing. And it's just all horrible. So, yeah. Yeah. My personal opinion, though, is incest and um, polygamy are, are closer to the mark because they're all the same reasons. You don't have to argue about the, the age of consent issue. But yeah, Marley. They'll have to. Yeah, they'll have to. They'll have to. They won't have a choice. And they've and some of them have already started. Um, in uh, in some countries, they've they've already been doing this because we're we're fortunately further behind on this. Um, but uh, but yeah, the it's inevitable that same sex and and I. <laughs> My honest advice, just as a, as a person, I can't say this like as a pastor of Hosanna, but just as an individual, my honest advice is either get your kids out of public schools, government schools, or walk them through the government schools in a way where you are inoculating them to these things rather than just letting them figure it out on their own, where you're actually, you're, you're with, you're, you got their textbook open too, where you're talking to them after class and you, you know what they're going through. So, and we do this somewhat in our youth ministry. We talk about these issues all the time, but, um, but it starts way before they get to high school. You gotta, you know, it's kindergarten, it's preschool. Let's go back to the homosexual issue. Um, in, in real world practicalities, if you're dealing with friends or family that are in a homosexual relationship, you're talking to them, and they say to you, well, I believe in God, I was baptized, I'm a Christian. Says, and then the scripture says, God looks at all sin as the same. It also says he looks at homosexuality as an abomination. So, but that negates God looks at all, all sinners the same. So you're telling me, I'm going to play the part of the homosexual, you're telling me that I'm looked at worse than a murderer, a liar, an adulterer, a fornicator. And God's word says, no, he doesn't look at me that way. So why do you single me out? This. Well, this is a uh, that's a classic example of a complete misrepresentation <laughs> of of me. <laughs> so, um, so my response would be first to clarify a few things. Uh, there's several things. One is um, I never said homosexuality was worse than murder. I think murder is far worse. The rate of murder causing injury to people is much higher than the rate of homosexuality causing injury to people. <laughs> um, murder is demonstrably worse than homosexuality, um, and I think uh, uh, rape is worse than homosexuality. I think that, you know, there's lots of things that are worse than this, but there's lots of things that are better than that too, or less worse. And the Bible actually never says that all sin is the same in God's eyes. This is a common, I'm going to do a whole, I'll do a week on this someday. Uh, I haven't done it yet, so I, I won't, but basically all sin is not the same. And we sort of know this. That's why there's different laws in the old Testament for different violations. That's why we have different laws and consequences for different violations. That's why Jesus talked about how it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for certain people than other people because they're not all viewed the same. Um, and so, yeah, it's not. Uh, sexual sin is highlighted. Doesn't make it the worst sin in the world. Like, I think preaching a false gospel that leads people to eternal damnation is probably up there, you know, as one of the worst possible things. But... Um, but the, uh, the issue of sexual sins, all sexual sins are couched as being especially harmful. And that would probably include making them worse than some other sins because of the harm they cause to the individual. That's, I think it's 1 Corinthians 6. 
Um, and so, yeah, so they're not all the same, but that doesn't mean homosexuality is the worst sin. Um, that's silly. I think that as Christians, we should, we should have a perspective that every sin is probably worse than our hearts give it credit for, but that doesn't mean every sin is the same. And, um, and then to then add one more thing to that, does it have to be the worst sin for you to stop doing it? Or will you only stop the worst sin? I mean, if it's a sin, you should want to stop it. That, that would be, I think, where I would go from there. Is it a response to that? or? No, I'm just asking okay. the questions. Yeah, anyway, good question. Good question. Yeah, because if this is a real-world situation. You're mm-hmm. dealing with family and families, <coughs> and they're, they're asking you these kind of questions. And it's really common that they have these these confusions about your perspective on these things. And as Christians, we should know this, the, cl- the modern cliche that all sin is the same. That's not in the scripture. And, and you don't believe it either. You don't believe it either. If I went up to you and said, hey, would you rather me um, steal a dollar out of your wallet or punch your child in the nose? You're like, okay, okay, maybe not all sin is the same. <laughs> if I have a choice. Yeah. yeah. Of course, you'd probably just attack me rather than let me have the option, which would probably be smart, but, but yeah, not, we know not all sin is the same, but, um, yes. Kirk. All sin is sin and all sin leads to hell. Yeah. But not all sin is equal. Yeah. So it's like, it does make the case. Some people, they, they yeah. see that. They... A, a great, a great example. One verse for this is Jesus speaking to Pilate. He, um, he, he's like, don't you know I have power over you to do this and that and this and that? And he goes, yeah, but you know who has the greater sin is the one who, who delivered you to me. Whoa, Jesus, you think someone has greater sin than someone else? Like, yeah, in those exact words, has the greater sin is this. So this is just not a biblical concept. It's just something that we've heard and we've adopted and we've repeated. And, um, and when you think about it, you're like, yeah, yeah, that's ridiculous to think all sin is identical. But all sin is sin, as Kirk said, and sin brings death. Um, but it all doesn't bring the same punishment exactly. So anyway, I'll do I'll do a whole thing on that someday. <laughs> but it clarifies that issue. Yeah, Gracie. The hashtag love is love. Yeah. Besides being a tautology, mm-hmm. uh, is there any response? Yeah, I uh, th- that's good. It depends. Um, <laughs> if someone just put hashtag love is love, I just wouldn't even I would ignore it mostly. But if I wanted to address it, I might ask them like, how do you define love? And then based on that definition, say, is that a fair definition for this scenario, for that scenario, for this scenario? Um, and maybe ask them some good questions like, what if I'm married, but I love someone else? Is it okay for me to leave my wife and be with that person? Love is love. Um, you know, and you could ask them some, some hard questions so they can challenge this perspective that love, what they're really saying is love makes it okay. Um, but yeah. If you love something, you never <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Never let it go. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I think that, in my opinion, because, I mean, everything's so tense and so volatile, I'm not even interested in the rainbow issue, although it matters, but it's, I'm not interested in it because. I know that if I win the rainbow, I don't win you. You know, I don't help you. Like I just get you to stop using the rainbow. And then I'm like, yeah, I, I want to help you. I want to help you to say, I'm going to say yes to God that this is sin is sin. <laughs> Maybe that's a response to love is love. <laughs> and uh, 
And uh, <laughs> yeah, but so I, I think that even though it bothers you, understandably, I would probably avoid it. Yeah, with the rainbow. So it's like, why are you saying, you know, celebrating this? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that's, but that's why we're doing this. That's why we're doing this. So hopefully you guys are equipped to have these discussions. And you can always go on YouTube and rewatch some of this stuff if it comes up. And, um, and I'm always available. I almost, you, know, you all know me, so you could call me or, or message me or something like that. I love answering hard questions. I love it. Don't ask me why. I know other people that hate it. <laughs> Lori, did you have a question? I think more of an observation was kind of in line with what you were saying is this was kind of like um, the sheep's clothing is coming off as far as people on Facebook, people on social media. Yeah. And I am, um, I don't know about you guys, but I was very much surprised at the Christian group that I have on my, you know, 100 friends or whatever, how yeah. many of them showed support. It was almost like they were waiting to say, boom, there you go, and yeah. I'm gonna, and it was just kind of like, uh, I don't know, like they were waiting for this decision to give them credibility. <coughs> I don't know if it's because they were sympathetic towards a family member or something, but it just gave them momentum to try to twist scripture. So I'm grateful that we have this, um, yeah. and I can point them yeah. to these meetings and stuff. It's, and, and plus, the way our culture is typically, there was the rainbow they put on their Facebook page, whatever, is responded to with support. And for those who, you know, like my, you know, my friend list got shorter. When I was like, hey guys, I'll be doing a series on touch and stuff. You know, it was like, it's like, doo, doo, doo. It's just, I lost a few, you know. And other people, you know, even family responded in very negative ways. Um, a friend, a family member was like, don't ever invite me to your God stuff ever again. And I was like, okay, I won't, you know, that's, that's what you want, you know. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, homosexuality from a Christian perspective is not a major, I should say, it's, it's not a central issue. It's really not, which is why up until recently, I almost never talk about it. You know, I'm teaching through the word. If it comes up, I teach about it, you know. But the world is making this the issue that says, will you stay loyal to God? Or will you compromise the scripture? So it becomes, this becomes the tipping point. So that's why we're like, okay, well, if this is, this is going to be the tipping point, then we're going to, we're going to try to help tip people the right direction on it. Um, and it, and the, the idea of people changing their views because they know someone, that is actually the number one reason. It's not logic and reasoning. And it is because they know someone who's gay. They know someone who's homosexual and they are just heartbroken over it. And they decide because the new the, the new movement says either accept my homosexuality or reject me as a person you can't have me in your life you can't even be my friend that's that's what it that's what it tries to preach so they're like oh and imagine if it's your son or your daughter my heart goes out to people who have that scenario that's that's amazingly difficult and so then they say okay well I still want to accept you and then this eventually they're like looking for a way sometimes to accept this and a lot of the pro-gay theologians, a disproportionate number of them, they have a child or a close f family member who is homosexual, and that is the thing that helped the tipping point for them. So really, the, the goal of the Matthew Vines Reformation Project, one of their major goals, is to make sure everybody gets into a relationship with a gay Christian. Quote, I don't accept that term, but a quote-unquote gay Christian. Uh, because, uh, and, and by that they mean practicing gay, not someone who says, I have same-sex attractions.
but someone who's actively engaging in that. And, um, and that is the tipping point. And those of you who've probably struggled the hardest with it, with this, it's because you know someone you care about and that's, that's understandable. That's absolutely, I know people I care about too. Um, but if it's wrong, then compassion will lead me to try to bring them out of it instead of encourage them to do it. Um, and I'll, I will announce now, uh, next week, for those that are choose to be involved, I'm going to start a series on Catholicism. And um, it, it will not be unkind or uncharitable, but it will, also, it will also deal very, very honestly and openly with the theology issues and some of that stuff and understanding Catholicism as well as how to, how to witness and share with Catholic friends and family and stuff like that. Um, to the point where hopefully if you are a Catholic or former Catholic, you'll be able to sit in and be like, Oh, that's, that's well done. That's really well done. That's, that's my goal. So next week I'm going to talk about that. And the Sunday night services that we're doing here are, um, it's topical. I'm taking one topic at a time that I think is really important and we'll survey either what the scripture teaches about that issue or we'll survey that, that issue from a biblical worldview, which is what we've done with this issue here. So it'll be more of the same, but uh, I do anticipate that there'll be shorter messages. I actually shortened our worship time a little bit because of the amount of data I was trying to get through in our four weeks. And so um, anyway, if you want to be part of it, you're all, of course, welcome. And the YouTube channel, it's all going to be on YouTube, so you could watch it anytime you want. This series, the four weeks, I'm going to make into a, into a little four CD pack that'll be available in the Java Oasis if anybody wants it. Um, the goal here is, and I don't care if you copy it and give it out to people to, to bless them and help them, I don't care. The goal is just to help people with information, you know. And so um, uh, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. I'm grateful that we can be over this this difficult issue, but having felt like it's been well addressed and, and lots of different various angles and sides have been dealt with. And we just pray that you'd use this information as it goes out on YouTube and is available on, on CD and, and especially, Lord, as it is in our hearts and minds now that we've heard it. Um, let us have opportunity to be light and be salt and speak the truth in love to be bold to be in a sense unapologetic but full of compassion lord help us be balanced and we pray that we would be a light in this world and we do pray for our culture those people that are in it lord we ask that um for their own sakes lord that you'd lead them out of darkness and into light and for believers and churches that are coming out as pro-gay and ultimately unbiblical um, we pray, Father God, that you would you'd handle it. it they're they're your, your people, or at least they claim to be, and we pray that you would handle it and you deal with it, Lord. And we just pray for a revival in the church as we, as we uh, just get back to firmly standing on the word of God. May we be revived. May we be radically revived. In Jesus' name, amen.